Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Professor Simon Chadwick, Professor of Sport and Geopolitics at Schema Business School in Paris. Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me to be here. Simon, as we begin with all of our guests, what was your earliest football memory? Do, do, do I really have to answer that question? Um, I remember the earliest football memory I have is I remember my father. Uh, he, he just got a car for the very first time um, in 1970. And he uh, he used to go and fill up at Esso stations. And Esso, if you've spent a certain amount of petrol on uh, a certain amount of money on petrol and Esso station in 1970, you got a free football coin for the World Cup. And I remember my father, keep, he kept giving me these football coins, 1970 football coins. And, you know, God knows where they are now. I mean, I'm long gone. But uh, I remember thinking, why are you doing this? Why are you giving me these coins? Why are they? You know, can you buy anything with them? Which, of course, you couldn't. Um, so uh, that was my first football memory. So I have vague recollections of watching the World Cup in 1970. And, and so that's the reason I didn't want to answer, because it dates me considerably. 1970. And it's funny enough one because right now we have the World Cup right in our doorstep as we were speaking off camera in the middle of a winter as I'm looking at the snow outside my window just now. But I mean, obviously, you have this passion too, Simon, for geopolitics. You have a passion for football. Where did curiosity to kind of look for the intersections and crossroads between both stem from? So I, 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 I guess after 1970 and football coins, um, I started to take an interest. Uh, you know, it was my father. You know, there's the ball, kick it. Um, there's the team, support it, and uh, and away and, and away I went from there. And, and you know, I, I'm, in this sense, I, I was a fan in in just the same way. I, a kid kicking a ball after school. You know, I had my sticker album. Um, <laughs> You know, your dad would take you the game on a Saturday. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just no different to anybody else in that respect. Um, I guess the turning point, obviously, I, uh, unlike a lot of my peers from my hometown, I went away to university and uh, I studied economics. And when I graduated, you know, when I graduated, you know, who could have imagined that you would work in sport? You know, nobody went to work in sport, you know, unless you're a player or an athlete or a coach you you didn't go work in sport and and so i went away and did other things and and eventually i find myself in the mid 90s sharing an office in a university by that time i was a university lecturer uh and i had hair and i was a you know much younger guy and and the guy i shared my office with said do, do you know anything about me i said well, no i don't and 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 he said i used to play for aston villa in the 1960s so he too was an academic and uh, he said, shall we write something about football? And I said, well, yeah, okay, why not? Now keep in mind that when we did this in 1995, the Premier League was was um, three years old. And uh, so we were talking about the, the commercial evolution of football and, and, and what the Premier League was really all about. You know, you've got to keep in mind the Premier League back in 1995 was very different to how it is now. And that was it, the way we went. And, and this subsequently led to I, I i studied for a doctorate my 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 doctorate was uh a study of football shirt sponsorship 
that led me into working with organizations. Very soon after finishing my PhD, I began to work with UEFA, for, for example, and I, I still work with UEFA even now. But uh, about 2008, 2007, 2008, I started to, to, to look at Asia in particular. And, and in 2007, in fact, in 2006, Qatar had opened up the Aspire Academy. Um, and and, uh, and I kind of thought, well, what is this Aspire Academy and, and why did it cost so much and why has this country done this? Um, but I very soon after went to visit China for the first time. And similarly, China seemed to be spending huge amounts of money spent uh, on, on sports infrastructure. And you know, on, on the one hand, you know, one of the things I know about Qatar and China is, is there are you know, kind of lifelong hardcore sports fans you know, had this people who had, had the same kind of childhood as I did, um, but they're very different in the sense that the government plays a very prominent role. They're very different in the sense that uh, they've got lots of money to spend, and that money comes from different sources. and And they're also different in terms of what they're seeking to achieve. And so, over the last decade, I've spent lots of times in lots of different places. Um, Yes, watching sport, but equally also you know, spending time with politicians, with government decision makers, with sponsors, with football associations and, and many others. Um, and, and so I found myself here now uh, with, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, kind of I've got that background as a fan, but I've also got the background in terms of you know, a lot of the a lot of my studies, uh, a lot of my professional life has been spent inside business schools. But at the same time, as I say, over the last decade and a half in particular, I, I've spent lots of times with other other people involved in sport, involved in football, as I say, sponsors, governing bodies and, and so on. And and so in, in, in terms of what I write about and what I feel really passionate about, um, everything has, you know, I think everything is now coming together in one place for one month. You know, it's a bit like if you can imagine everything that you're interested in happening in one place at one time, you know, what would it be? Well, you know, I guess for me, it would be Qatar 2022. Fascinating way to put it. And as Simon, it's something which you alluded to there just now. I mean, increasingly over the past decade, you've been spending a lot of time away from home. You've been visiting places such as China, such as Qatar, where football really can be levied at times as a nation building exercise. I mean, football is nation-building, Simon. Where do the roots of that all begin? If, if you... Uh, one of the things that I always do is is wherever I go in the world, I always uh, take a taxi from the airport and I sit in the front seat and talk to the driver. And a great conversation start because taxi taxi drivers are you know they tell you lots of things that you know they tell you the best place to eat and they tell you the best place to drink and they tell you you know don't go there because you'll get mugged um so it's always good to talk to taxi drivers and a great conversation starter in terms of you know the relationship with the taxi driver is um which team do you support and and uh, inevitably the conversation then turns to the premier league and to, and to Arsenal and Manchester United and Liverpool and and you know many many fan and many many taxi drivers around the world were saying oh, I'm a really really big you know Liverpool fan I re I remember the days of Kenny Dalglish and or a United fan you know Alex Ferguson was a great manager and you know Ronaldo look at what Ronaldo's doing and you know how he used to be back in the old days and 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 so I think for for 
particularly for people in, I guess, in Europe and South America, we tend to take a lot of things for granted. We may not even be aware of the things that we take for granted, um, which is the power, the power of the sports that we have helped to shape the the institutions that you know we 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 live and breathe these institutions and and you know, we perhaps don't realize how deeply into our psyche how deeply into our culture they've actually embedded themselves and and of course when you go to when you go to places like for example Qatar historically they they haven't had that so you know if you think about Qatar you know, prior to the World Cup and and 2010 when they won the bid to, to stage the World Cup what what was the conversation start with a Qatari you know oil and gas maybe or the desert or you know goat herding or you know, so there's something about the power of football it's the people's game it's the global game you know it's a conversation starter it's 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 a sport around which there's discourse and narrative and and whilst we might take it for granted in Europe, um, it is something that the other countries don't necessarily have at their disposal. And so, you know, in essence, Qatar wants a piece of the action. China wants a piece of the action. You know, Russia 2018, they wanted a piece of the action because they all want to be part of this global conversation that that, that we have about the game. I very often say to my students, and, and when we're discussing such issues, is, is, is I'll say one word to the students and then I'll ask them to tell me what they're thinking and what they're feeling. And, and the word that I very often say to students is Brazil. Now, much of what, much of what people think about Brazil is bound up in football because you immediately, when you talk, talk about Brazil, you're talking about Neymar, you're talking about Ronaldinho, you're talking about Ronaldo, you're talking about Pele, you're talking about sexy football. And, and of course, the way in which people therefore conceive of Brazil or they frame Brazil is, is in terms of what they think about Brazilian football. And, and so you know, I know that the Chinese in particular, you know, the Chinese want, want people to talk about China in a different way to the way in which we currently talk about China. Now, obviously, COVID has disrupted that. Um, but prior to COVID, the, Chi the Chinese government wanted people to talk about China in the same way as people talk about Brazil you know, in terms of, well, isn't it great? You know, look at this football, you know, amazing games, all the successes, the great teams, the tournaments, the goal scorers, you know, as they say, Neymar, Pele, Ronaldinho, Ronaldo, um, and so that's where I think the power of football comes from, because it 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 shapes a it shapes a global narrative about your country, and of course you know if if we if if we if we're in love with a country if we're in love with its football if we like the teams you know if we really adore their great players, then from that comes a whole bunch of other things. It makes diplomacy easier. It makes international relations easier. It helps to brand the nation. And, and we know best league in the world. And, it, and it's, it's, it's a story that the English tell themselves, best league in the world. But I think it's also a story that others around the world tell themselves about the Premier League. And, and so, you know, in kind of in terms of social capital, in terms of political influence, in terms of economic returns, you know, the best league in the world carries with it a huge amount of benefit. I think there's something to be had there, Simon, in that. You know, the stories we tell ourselves will soon become the stories that others speak will tell about us. And looking at the global governing body responsible for the help of the game, you know, FIFA. And it's something which you touched upon on Twitter the other day. I mean, there is a gross misinterpretation, though. 
that FIFA is a Western organization. However, when it just happens to be based in the West, I mean, there's been a rebalancing of power that you could speak of in the last 20, 30 years from the West, which has posed a lot of governance problems, which you could say they could have dealt a lot better with. So, I mean, I, I guess the first matter to address there is that is the this different world that we live in and and uh, i guess the people who might listen to this uh, will have a mobile phone um that mobile phone will not have been made in ireland uh or, or for that matter in canada the reality is different components will probably have been made in different places you know possibly a, a chip from china or taiwan you know maybe a screen or the casing from vietnam Obviously, you know, in terms of the brand itself, the brand could be American, but it could also be South Korean, possibly Chinese. So the reality of life, the, the life that we live now is 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 that um, it's global and it's it's very different. Um, certainly you know, compared to late 20th century life. And I would argue that the, the world is even, you know, is, is an even even a different place compared to 2010 when the, the, the Qatar bid announcement was made. And, and so you know, we live in a world where things are changing and shifting and, and there is this pivot from what people would call the global north, which is you know, Europe and, and North America and, and um, you know, perhaps Japan, Australia, towards what we would call the global south. Which is Africa and 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 um, Southeast Asia and South American countries like Brazil, for instance. So, you know, I guess for 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 the old colonialists of of, of Great Britain, you know, we, we don't live in the nineteenth century anymore. We don't even live in the twentieth century anymore. We live in a very different world where where power is distributed and used in in very different ways. And of course, this means that what we've got is something that if you go back. 12 13 14 years ago but certainly 25 years ago you know nobody would have ever have imagined a country you know what is qatar and, and you know who is it where is it you know, i can't even find it on a map and and yet suddenly here it is you know, hosting the football's showcase national team tournament and and you know notwithstanding all of the things that we've said about qatar you know, what i would invite people to do is to think about the significance of it in terms of our world you know we, we we have a we have a changed world and clearly this poses issues um that many of which we we, we you know, we're now aware of so whilst we might be very tolerant and and supportive of lgbtq plus communities in 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 canada in in ireland in 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 great britain in france and elsewhere we now have a tournament where attitudes towards the LGBTQ plus community is very different. And, and I know there have been, there's been endlessly deba endless debate about this, but for me, fundamentally, you know, the changing world in which we lived has live has created this juxtaposition. And what we have to do is to understand how we navigate through this complexity. And of course the organization that does this on behalf of football is FIFA and I mean, it's interesting because somebody once asked me, would you like to be the president of FIFA? And I said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think this is one of the most complicated, you know, it's like being president of the world. You know, how, how do you navigate through uh, this complexity? Because inevitably my values are not your values and, and, and my morals are not necessarily your morals. And so somehow the likes of Infantino and, and obviously those who've preceded but more importantly those who will follow infantino 
will have to deal with this. And this raises all manner of questions about you know, what is FIFA and who governs FIFA and you know, wh- who does FIFA govern on behalf of and what principles should it adopt in, in governing on behalf of these people. And this is a really, really complicated task, I think. And, and you know, I'm not saying Infantino is uh, a good president or a bad president, but I think what we have seen is is that Infantino has has tried, but has sometimes struggled to govern the organisation in this very complicated world. And 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 I guess you will know, and many of the listeners will know about the recent letter that Infantino sent out, which is you know just play the game and forget everything else. And 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 I, and, you know, and I do genuinely feel for the guy because you know I still you know I still remember that in a child. You know, kicking the ball after school with my, you know, you put a couple of courts down for a goal, you know, that's kicking a ball ultimately. But the reality is now in the 21st century, it's it's not just kicking a ball. There's a lot more that comes with it geopolitically, socially, economically. And and you can see how FIFA struggles to deal with this. Um, is FIFA fit for purpose? I'm not entirely sure it, sure it is. Since Infantino became president, has it changed enough? And you know, has it gone far enough and fast enough? I'm not sure it has. But as I say, in defense of FIFA, in defense of Infantino, we live in a complicated world and it's difficult to know how to govern sports, to govern football in these under these con- conditions. It's a really intriguing one, though, Simon, as well, because this old adage about football as a reflection of society, you know, Back when I was growing up, it wasn't too long ago. I never really understood it, never really got it. You know, just being accustomed to watching Soccer AM on a Saturday morning, watching the Premier League afterwards, you know, collecting Panini stickers galore. And, you know, to the best of my knowledge, there was only two strands on the news. You had the news cycle and you had the sports cycle. Whereas nowadays, I truly believe that it's broken into three. You have your news, you have your sports news, and then you also have football as a complete mm-hmm. separate entity in of itself. And obviously with the flavour of the month being the Qatar World Cup, I mean, this year you did co-edit a book titled The Business of the FIFA World Cup. I mean, for all of your studies, for all the years that you spent researching both the landscape of the sport intertwining with the geopolitical economy, what was the one thing in your research for that book which surprised you? And if I could just I, I go back to what you said there about football reflecting the world in which we live, and and you talked about your your childhood engagement with football and and soccer AM on uh, on on TV, and for me that was never part of my experience as a as a fan because you know my experience of of a fan was at working class Middlesbrough, which is where I was born and brought up. You know my family were steel workers. And and it's interesting that Middlesbrough, when it was first established as a as a club, uh, was called Ironopolis because it was a it was an iron and steel town, and uh, that's you, you played football and you had an interest in football because during you know the industrial revolution and beyond, when it got to a, a Saturday or a Sunday, you know very often you were just tired. You know, hard manual labour five six days a week. You, you work shifts. You know, maybe you'd had to work the night shift all night. You were just tired and you wanted to do something else. So you 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 either watched football or played football. Now, I think obviously by the time you came along and and you know, I'm guessing in a, in a kind of 1990s and early 2000s and you're talking about Soccer AM on, on Sky, by that time, so, football had started to change. And, and rather than being just a social institution, it was becoming a commercial entity. 
And and so I think that that you consumed 1990s football in in a way that was a reflection of the time. You know, Premier League was no, launched in 1992. The Champions League was launched in 1992. You know, money started flowing into the games. You had big broadcasting contracts. Sponsorships became much more valuable. Whereas now, you know, unfortunately for you and I, you you and me, because we're both old old blokes now. You know, the the young people of, of today are being born and brought up in a world of actually very, very complicated football, which is it's not just about you know society. It's not just about you know, where you're born and where you're brought up. It's not just about the industry that exists in your town. For that matter, it's not just about money and sponsorships and TV contracts. It's now about countries and it's now about LGBTQ plus rights and it's about sport washing. And it's about um, you know, buying a football club and spending huge amounts of money on it to try and uh, to try and buy the best players because it's going to make your nation look good. So I think absolutely, um, uh, I, we 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 live in we, you know we consume football and 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 the football that we consume is a reflection of our times. As regards to things that what surprised me about the uh, um, about the book, nothing surprised me about it. Nothing surprised me about it at all. And and reflecting upon your question, I think probably the big surprise in my mind, literally, that's just occurred to me is, is you know, talking about the business of the FIFA World Cup is a very kind of 1990s, 2000s thing to do. Maybe the next edition should actually be the geopolitical economy of the FIFA World Cup, because it's it's not just about your know, marketing and jobs and money. It's, it is actually about countries and political influence and societal change and, and as I said, you know, said earlier, you know, this kind of pivot from the global north to the global south. It's interesting about this pivot between the global north and global south because you know it's within the context, Simon would have to say, of this geopolitical drift towards the east. And in research for this podcast, it's something which you've described as the hyper commercialization of the game and of the sport. I mean, with that involved, you see a lot of different nation states. You see, obviously, Qatar, Saudi, UAE having these set of franchise clubs. I mean, what does that then entail for the future governance of the game? You could, in many ways, you could call it transnational governance. I mean, it's it, again, that's a really interesting question because I think that. Um... When I when I was a kid, it, you could ex, you, you could easily explain football. You know, it, it was a sociocultural phenomenon. It was about your community. It was about your town. It was about your family. And then later, um, when I when I first started to to research and write about not just football but sport more generally, it was at a time I was working in a business school and I and I could I was conceiving of. Um, of football in those terms and so i was seeing marketing and sponsorships and i was seeing issues of governance you know, i don't you know what i don't remember sitting around in my house in middlesbrough as a kid with me you know my family talking about you know let's let's discuss the governance of the game kids you know it, it was talking about you know it was talking about george best for example you know i remember george best bobby charlton manchester united coming to play in middlesbrough we lived opposite the football stadium so you know let's talk about george best um, you know, and I remember my 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 gran always talking about George Best. You know, he's such a show off, and look at his hair; it's far too long. You know, so it was a socio cultural phenomenon. Obviously, later, you know, going back to when you were you were younger, it, 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 the conversations changed, and people started to talk about 
you know, who's running the game and you know, where's our next sponsorship deal coming from? And have we got enough seats in our stadium to make enough money? And, and so the nature of the conversation changed and, and the, the conversation has changed again. And the conversation now is about, as you say, treatment of migrant workers. You know, it's a long way from my gran talking about Georgie, George Best, Georgie Best. She always used to call him Georgie Best. You know, it's a long way from my gran talking about Georgie Best and his hairstyle to now discussing migrant worker rights in, in Qatar. But I think that is how the world has changed. That's how um, that's how football has changed. And, and as I say, I, I think you've got to keep in mind about FIFA. FIFA was set up in Europe by Europeans you know, 100 years, 100 years ago or more. And 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 the world was very different then. And and so I think FIFA and Infantino in particular are, are acknowledging this changing world because there's now this, this report story that FIFA will spin out its commercial operations and locate them in New York. And I think that is kind of tacit acknowledgement that, you know, the world doesn't begin and end in Switzerland. Uh, and for that matter, the world doesn't begin and end in Europe. You know, what, what's going to be really interesting moving forward from here is, is will we see, for example, a FIFA office in Shanghai or a FIFA office in Tokyo or a FIFA office in Mumbai or Dubai, for that matter? Um, I think also we've got to we've got to ask ourselves is at which point are FIFA presidents no longer European? So apart from um, Havelange, a Brazilian and, and briefly um, when uh, when the, the, the Blatter scandal erupted, uh, a president from Africa, you know, essentially all, all of the FIFA presidents have been um, have been European. Now, keep in mind that, for example, that the president of the FIA, the, the world governing uh, body of, of motorsport, is now from the Gulf region. You know, we are now beginning to see that the governance of sport is, I guess you might say, kicking and screaming, um, is now beginning to reflect a much more globalized 21st century constituency. And so, you know, it's not inconceivable that, you know, for instance, you know, by 2030, we could have a Chinese FIFA president or we could have a Saudi Arabian FIFA president. And this, this for many Europeans and, and for the people in global North, they may this may be deeply, deeply uncomfortable and it may feel wrong and it may feel strange, but the reality is our world is changing and, and, the governance of sport will need to change to keep pace with that. And it's an inconvenient truth that we could ultimately, as I say, in 2030, have a Saudi Arabian FIFA president, for example. It's the paradox of growth, though, isn't it, Simon? Because it's funny enough with globalization, everyone wants to share the pie. Everyone deserves their time in the sun, so to speak. I mean, I, 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 I'll, 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 I'll say something publicly, which I don't really, I've not really said before. But I actually, I actually quite like people. You know, I quite like people all over the world. I've got friends all over the world. You know, I've got friends in Qatar. I've got friends in China. I've got friends in Russia. I've got friends in Ireland, in Canada, in Germany, in France. You know, I actually quite like people, and I really like the diversity and I like the culture. And and there's one thing that really, you know, that that really makes me feel happy is is to. Is to you know is to go to a place and 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 be part of local culture. You know, it's just an amazing planet that we live on, and so you know in this vein, I'm a great democrat. I'm a great egalitarian. 
and and I do believe you know just as you know South Africa got its got its moment in the sun and and uh, Japan and South Korea got their moments in the sun we all all of us every single one of us we deserve our moment in the sun but of course one of the difficulty is difficulties is on you know on this amazing planet that we live is is quite a lot of us don't agree with with each other um you know we don't we don't agree with very on very much and 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 that makes governing a global body global governing body difficult it makes makes staging tournaments difficult and and so we've got to have some basis upon which to move forwards and 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 not only govern sports but organize events and 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 competitions there are you know there there are globally agreed standards you know for example the united nations sustainable development goals and and you know this these weren't created by the Catharines. They weren't created by the Americans. They were created by us all. We agreed these things. Uh, there are seventeen of them, and and I would like to see, you know, for example, when World Cup hosting announcements are being made, that explicit reference is made in the bid documents, but also in terms of the award and then the subsequent evaluation of how well these countries have done as hosts. You know, I'd like to see references to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So just to, just to give you an example, you know, in, in the SDGs, there's reference to um, the equal treatment of women. Uh, there's reference to, for example, the provision of good quality employment. There's reference to um, ensuring environmental sustainability. And so... Yeah, you know, given that we given that we do live in this complex world, I think we need to try and rationalize it and at least try to bring some simplicity and common understanding. And as I say, I think those United Nations Sustainable Development Goals are one platform, one basis that we can use to make sure that football remains the sport that we love, but at the same time is able to keep pace with the the, the changes and the complexities that we see in the world. That's a brilliant point, Simon, too. But I think it's even beginning from the inside out. I think even a more stringent enforcement of these host nations being made accountable to hold those legacy plans. I mean, to the best of my knowledge, it's not so much of a stringent enforcement. You know, we look at some of the stadiums from the Brazil 2014 World Cup, for example, being overrun, being used as care parks. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's a difficult one with legacy because, you know, Legacy doesn't always manifest itself straight away, you know. So it's it's not within the first week or the first month or the first year after an event. You know, sometimes it can be five years or ten years. Or you know, if you look at Barcelona Olympics in nineteen ninety two, you know, it, it took a couple of decades to for the for the entire legacy to be realised. But you know, Barcelona ninety two is a good example, great legacy, you know, great legacy. But it took some time to get there. So you know, the question then becomes, how do you enforce that? Um, you know, you you can't kind of go back to to, to the Spanish government twenty years later with you and say, well, you know what, you didn't deliver the legacy, so we're fining you now. You know, it it, it doesn't work that way. So I, I I guess there is an element of of trust and faith and patience, um, and that's sometimes there's sometimes difficult things to establish and and, and uphold. So I, I, you know, I don't think we're only we're ever going to get to a utopia where a utopian situation where you know, someone says, okay, we're going to organize this tournament, we're going to deliver this legacy, and then twenty years later, it's a perfect legacy without question. You know, I, I, I you know, I don't think it can ever be like that. But I think we do have a um, both an individual and a collective responsibility as members of the global sport community to to do the things that we say we're going to do. 
I guess, you know, in this respect, you could say stop playing politics or, you know, stop using sport just for business purposes and, and show some responsibility. I, that's a little naive and a little simplistic, I think, on, on anybody's part to say that. But, I, you know, I genuinely do believe that for all of us who care about sports, we have to step up and we have to improve our standards and we have to be responsible. Um, and, and we do have to ensure that when we stage an event, for example, that, that it does effect positive changes and, and we can demonstrate you know we can measure these changes and demonstrate them but i think unfortunately one one of the things i one of the unfortunate things i know about sport is there are a lot of hangers on there are a lot of opportunists there are a lot of grifters um there are a lot of people who don't do the things they say they're going to do and unfortunately that does impact upon the the kind of sport that we very often get it's an interesting segue because getting back to the original point about the paradox of growth, you know, everyone wants their slice, Simon. And that usually entails a bigger portion of the pie each time, right? But for me, I'm just making notes here. For me, it's a fine balancing act between that and the voracious consumption of the game of football already. I know, again, that's really interesting because I think that one of the things that Infantino, um, he did it at UEFA and he's doing it again at FIFA. Is is he's trying not to upset the existing balance of power? He's trying not to upset that um, because, of course, if you upset people, it makes your job more difficult. So, what Infantino is 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 a past master at doing is is to say, well, look, you know, I I I I can't I can't give you a bigger share of the cake. You know, I I can't increase your stake from two percent to three percent. I can't do that. But I tell you what, I'll bake a bigger cake. So you're going to get two percent. You're still going to get your two percent, but the cake is bigger. So that two percent, you know, is in in absolute terms is going to be bigger. And 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 this is what Infantino does. But of course, what that then results in is this kind of hyper commercialization and voracious appetite and big, you know, big broadcasting deals, big sponsorships, um, countries with huge budgets that can mitigate financial risk for, for FIFA. You know, this is all part of that, 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 that plan. And, and so, you know, I, I, this is why, you know, I, I position myself as, you know, I kind of, I'm not a just, I'm not a business school guy. I'm not a politics guy. I'm, I'm somewhere between the two because, you know, being a good, being a good business person means that you've really got to understand the, the, the context within, within which you play in the game. And, and, and equally, as a politician, you've got to understand, you, know, you can't just be a pure politician. There's money very often at stake here. And at the same time, you know, if, you, if you're just a, a fan, you know, if you're wanting to watch, you know, if, you, if, if, if you're a Qatari fan or a Saudi Arabian fan, or for that matter, an Irish fan or a Canadian fan, you know, you've got to understand there's a lot going on. It's not just about kicking the ball. It is about money. It's, it is about politics. It's, it is about you know, kind of moral obligations. It is about egalitarianism and democracy and fairness and, and openness. And, you know, in amongst all of this, as I said, there is FIFA. And, and you know, we, we go back to the point, is, is FIFA fit for purpose at the moment? I'm not entirely sure it is. Um, how do you change it? That's a real tough question. And and I don't think it's a kind of question that one person alone can 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 decide. It's, it's, it's got to be a, a diverse constituency of people and stakeholders that do that. You know, there's that saying in periods of evolution and periods of change, people don't quite understand that they were in that period of change 
until a decade or so until after the fact. So the next question is intertwined with everything which we've discussed today, Simon. I mean, and that's what does the football public need to prepare themselves for that they're not already for? I mean, obviously, you know, there's this thing about you don't know what you don't know. Um, and, and and it's only later that you find out that what, what you didn't know. Um, and I, 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 I guess for for the the football public, and I, I, I suppose by that I'm I'm inferring that that you're talking about fans. Um, as a fan, I, I said right at the very start, I'm from a working class Middlesbrough Steel family. You know, nobody had ever been my uni- Nobody in my family had ever been to university before. I was the first person in my family to go to university. And and what I know is that you've got to educate yourself and you've got to learn. And in educating yourself and learning, um, I guess as well, you, you can't run away from the truth. Uh, you can't run away from facts. And so if, for example, you, you're out on the streets jumping up and down, waving your scarf or your flag because Saudi Arabia has just bought your football club. Then you know, in one respect, good on you, good on you. you know, after all, you know, after after years of suffering and years of hardship, you might actually win something. But that is not the extent of what Saudi Arabia buying a football club actually means. The extent um, is is way way beyond that because here is a Gulf state, and and you know that Gulf state has. You know, particular associations with it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, by the same token, eh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not singling out Saudi Arabia. You know, it could be a U.S. private equity investor who, who rocks up in their, uh, you know, in their Rolls Royce and says, "Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this the greatest club in the world, and we're gonna be there, the most powerful commercial force." And you know, fantastic. You know, we're gonna appear in the Deloitte Top Thirty Money League. Um, nothing comes without consequence, and 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 I think one of the one of the particular things that I've learned throughout my academic career one is, is is you've got to understand the nature of cause and effect and 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 nothing ever happens without an effect you know there's something that causes it and there, there are outcomes or effects of it and and so as as a fan you really do have to think about cause and effect you know what has caused saudi arabia to invest in your club you know what has caused this us private equity investor to invest in your club and what are the effects of that? And and I hope that for lots and lots of people, you think, you know what, this is fantastic, cause and effect, fantastic. I'm really happy. You know, I'm I'm satisfied. I know what's going to happen. You know, in my mind, I know what's going to happen. You know, I'm content with that outcome. But of course, one of the one of the problems with cause and effect is that sometimes we don't like the causes and we don't like the effects. And and so this is particularly, I think, you know, when you've got to educate yourself, you know, before you before you rush headlong into saying, we love the Saudi Arabians, we hate the Qataris, you know, we wel- welcome with open arms US private equity investors, you know, this guy from Malaysia who's bought our club, what the hell is that all about? You know, you've got to learn, you've got to, you've got to familiarize yourself, you've got to understand, you've got to equip yourself with the information, because only then can you really, really begin, begin to, one, understand the situation, and two, make a make a kind of reasoned judgment about whether or not you want to continue supporting this club, or you know whether you take an optimistic view of the future or not. So that's where I stand on all of this. 
Let's play devil's advocate, Simon. I mean, to cast your mind back to your Middlesbrough days, do you ever think about what would happen if you never pursued this interest for geopolitics and sport and maintained that blind love for football as many, if not all, football fans do? I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid and, and you know, in school, I get into like 3.20 and you, you're looking at a clock on the wall and you know, you know the school bell's going to ring soon and, and you're going to run home. Like I, you know, I lived like 200 metres away from this from uh, from the school and right opposite my house was the football stadium. We would put our put our goal out on, on at the front of the, the stadium, Ayrson Park, and we play. It's there, 3.20. You wait for the bell to ring. And you just can't wait, and, and just such such excitement, and uh, that that was how my 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 interest in and my consumption of football was shaped, and 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 you know football on TV and the replica kits and sticker albums and you know, I remember the first time I got to stand on the uh, Ayrson Park pitch. This was just like you know God had descended from heaven. You know it was just incredible. Now I hate football. I'm I'm not interested. I'm not interested. I never watch football on TV. I never go to games. Um, I can't tell you that. In fact, the, the last time I went to a game, I I went to something like a a twelfth division Polish league game, um, and it was great because there was there was there was none of the money. There was none of the geopolitics. It was just eleven v eleven. You know, let's see who wins. You sat right by the pitch, and and for me that was that was a real joy. It was really pure, and and uncontaminated. And yeah, you know, of course, there was a couple of big mouths on the on the sidelines, and there was also the you know the opposing player who you know really like putting the boot in, and you know, so all of that was there. But it was it was just something really kind of pure. But when I find myself, for example, thinking about the Premier League, or when I find myself, for example, thinking about the Qatar World Cup. I just think too much, and 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 as I said, I I think the issues are really complicated, and I'm in, I'm really 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 interested in those complicated issues. The, what I think what's really switched me off football is the grifters, is all the grifters and the hangers on and the freeloaders and the opportunists. Um, I just I just want nothing to do with it really, um, because it's it's. It's it's not a it's not a group of people that I necessarily have something in common with. Um, I don't necessarily share their outlook on life anyway. Um, and so, you know, I I guess and what I'm interested in is politics and countries and nations and states and culture and society. Um, if I get the opportunity, you know, if somebody says you're on holiday, Simon, in Turkey. Do you, do you fancy coming and watching this, you know, this sixth division Turkish game? You know, two, two, two really interesting. Yeah, of course, I'll go and watch it. Yeah, you know, I'll go and watch it because I think you know, for me that's that's something pure and uncorrupted. Um, but otherwise, I've, I've, you know, in many ways, I've actually fallen out of love with football. I don't love football anymore. And for your students, Simon, or for anyone listening to this podcast, what would be the advice or the set of considerations which you would implore them? to look at before thinking about it don't, don't 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 necessarily listen to me uh, that will be the first piece of advice because i've fallen out of love with the with the with the sport um 
I would say that that for, for people who want to, to to go and work in in not just in football, but I think sport more generally is is going with your eyes wide open. Um, you know, the biggest companies in the world are not football clubs. So if you somehow you know if you somehow think you're going to go and work for Google or you know you're going to go and work for BMW or Chanel, you're not. You're going to go and work for a football club. You know, most football clubs are small, medium sized enterprises. They're not global corporations in the same way as Google. So that, 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 that's one thing that I would say. I think the second thing that I would, I would, I would say is, is that you know, in some ways what you see on the field, you know, the, those, those players, whether they're male or female, those players, they work unbelievably hard. They sacrifice a lot to get to, get to where, they, where they've got to. And very often to go and work, you know, as a marketing manager or as a, as, a, as a stadium manager or as a director of finance or whatever, they expect you to do exactly the same thing. So you know you've got to keep in mind that you've got to be on your game. So if you're going, if, you, if you're not a great player, you're never going to make it to the start in eleven. You're not going to be a coach, but you're going to go and work in the offices. You've still got to be one hundred percent on your game. The big difference is, of course, is is that. Um, Whereas Kevin De Bruyne or you know Cristiano Ronaldo gets paid a huge amount of money for being on their game, you're probably not. You know, so if you're working as a assistant marketing manager at you know a, a, an English Championship club, you know you are going to have to be on your game, but you're probably not going to get paid as much as Cristiano. In fact, I know you're not going to get paid as much as Cristiano Ronaldo. So, I what I would say is, you know, incredibly interesting you know i'm i'm really grateful to football i'm really thankful to sport i really you know i i i you know i'm i'm in debt to all of the people around me who've helped me and supported me um you can make a great career you can go excited to exciting places and meet, meet really interesting people you know, i've met some really generous and kind people some really friendly people some of whom are actually very famous. Um, so, you know, there are great things about football, but I think you do need to go into it with your eyes open. That's a brilliant way to end the podcast. But Simon, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me and uh, apologies for the confessions. <laughs> <laughs>